The world is a new place, and we're all making adjustments. It moves faster and changes direction more frequently than ever before. People feel stuck, unfulfilled, and lost in their lives. I hear this all too often. Where are the answers? Someone please just give me the answers. Well, what if I told you the answers are finally here? My name is Scott McDonald, and I was once just like you. Join me on my process of personal development, pathway of success, and pursuit of happiness. For you see, my job isn't just to ask questions. My job isn't to just listen. My job is to ensure what happened to me does not happen to you. This is the Real Experience Student Athlete Podcast. I am Scott McDonald. Today I'm, bo- today I'm joined by Tim Turk, NHL level shooting and scoring coach who has worked with many organizations, teams, coaches, and players at all levels for both male and female. In the past, Tim has worked with four NHL organizations, the Montreal Canadiens, Tampa Bay Lightning, Carolina Hurricanes, and the Arizona Coyotes. He's also worked with many national programs overseas, such as Sweden, Finland, Latvia, and Russia, just to name a few. And he continues to work with NHL players throughout his career. He specializes in hockey shooting, passing, puck protection, and most importantly, how you get paid the most, scoring. Tim's main focus is to enhance individual hockey skill sets from all the services that he offers through team development, camps, clinics, video analysis, private and small group sessions, game evaluations, and tryout sessions. Tim, it's fantastic to have you here. Excuse me, getting caught up in my words. I'm so starstruck. It's fantastic to have you here, sir. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, uh, Scotty. Really appreciate you doing this. Uh, you know, like, during these times, there's nothing better than either putting out information for all types of athletes, uh, more specifically in our sport, hockey, giving that information out to them so that they can, uh, number one, they can make applications and they can work on things um, also with number two. And then and then number three, uh, giving them a visual through, through things that we're explaining, um, what we see and what we do and what we've uh, experienced in the past to help them to, uh, to build their, uh, their skill set. And then obviously, if they're willing to do so, uh, improve their own skills. Yeah, it's incredible, you know, like uh, the resources that are here now to be able to teach uh, athletes in such a different way and to be a lot more micro. Dan Lichterman and I were going through this and you're kind of the perfect guy to talk about it, especially because uh, you're strictly, uh, well, not strictly just a shooting guy. There's other skill sets that you are. But, uh, you know, I, I find that a person like yourself, you can show it both, you know, on the ice and off the ice just through communication. So to be able to do that, something like this is just absolutely fantastic. Um, and how, how's it been going for on your end? You know, I know you're you just did your first Zoom session this morning uh, with Hill Academy with Lifty. Uh, how's how's that been going in the virtual world for you? Well, it's you know, it's it's unbelievable how me being a more of a hands on type of teacher, not being too tech savvy. This. I believe this technology is really helping these athletes to stay warm. And one of the things that, uh, that, that I like to tell all the players out there and in all the individuals, even coaches for that matter is, is when you're offering information to someone uh, through this technology, it, it allows them to stay, uh, as I said, to stay warm and, and keep thinking about some of the things and visualize what they're going to need to do once they get the opportunity to jump back on the ice or, or into the environment that they're used to working in. 
So it's been really busy. Uh, I mean, uh, as I was mentioning earlier before we started up, there's a bunch of players that are they're reaching out to me. They're saying, you know, hey, Turkey, like give me something that I can work on. Or here's my video. What, can, what else can I do to, to, to improve, number one, maintain, number two, or, or just stay active, number three, so that my mindset is still there. You know, there's, so there's many different uh, things that are going on, but it, it, it's been busy. I thought it was going to slow down uh, with me being off the ice, but it's, uh, it's maintaining this, uh, this high level of, uh, of players uh, who want to keep on improving or maintain what they have. Yeah, and it's incredible, too, how – you know, everyone thought with this quarantine and self-isolation, now is the time for everyone just to kind of be in a holding pattern. And for athletes and coaches, it's completely different. You really have to get creative now and think outside the box, especially for like a hockey player whose, whose season got cut short earlier in March. Uh, we're not starting up till the fall, you know, when it gets back to the season. And if, if you start even in August, you're looking at five months of not being, you know, in your environment, which can be pretty detrimental to players. Um, what are some of the things that you're, you're teaching uh, your guys at the pro level, um, you know, so that they can stay sharp because this is their job and it's their, it, they're t they have to take extreme ownership day in, uh, day in and day out to stay on top of things. So what's some of the things that you've been uh, helping them with in the virtual world uh, to keep them sharp? So a lot of the things that we're doing um, with all players, even right from the NHL all the way down through the minor hockey parents are, are trying to reach out and, and one of the one of the parents the other day said you know like we, we don't do um, we don't do consistent sessions with you we do maybe every three weeks uh, you know based on their timing affordability and stuff like that but uh, little Johnny just wanted to hear your voice they just wanted to hear you say any of your catchphrases and things that that helps him to remember so that when he's on the driveway in the basement, side of the yard, off the sidewalk, whatever, stick handling, shooting, or get the rollerblades on. And, and I'm, I'm noticing also now that there's these little sheets of plastic that players are putting out in their driveway and they're throwing their skates on so that that, that, that reality is the same, the same height that they're at and that same feel with their skates on, which is really good. But a lot of the times I'm just talking about the catchphrases. And, like, I, I, call, I call the top hand on your stick a grip hand. Uh, the bottom hand on your stick, I call it a power hand, and then I remind them what the motion patterns are and what makes them effective, and remember how to use them with the range of motions and stuff like that. And then, and then it boils down to how they're practicing in the right way when they're when they're doing this repetitive motion patterns off the ice and and on the driveway. We want to make sure the body positions are good, uh, their foot position, the puck position, the hand position. So there's a lot of things that these players are asking me. Um, which prompts me to help them as much as possible. I said, I can't make a recommendation. Like, you know, we're going to talk about what, you know, like what, what's going to be the agenda for today? Well, well, I have an agenda in case we get off of it anyways, like you said. So sticking to a certain agenda progression pattern when you're doing your training is really good, but also having variety is excellent as well. Yeah. You know, and especially with a, with a, with a skill like shooting, you know, it, it's a lot of feel, um, you know, the body mechanics are there. I was more of a grip it and rip it kind of player. Uh, cause I, uh, you know, in, in terms of, uh, my slap shot ability, I, I was very proud of that. <laughs> and then uh, we worried about the other shots later, especially the wrister, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's fortunate to have a coach like you who can communicate that well with your athletes and make that connection and give them those little reminders because it's almost like, you know, uh, it, whether you're like kind of the same feel, like if you swing a golf club, you hit the sweet spot, you swing a baseball bat, you hit the sweet spot. 
you wind up to fire a puck, you got that sweet spot feeling. And uh, it's great that you can be able to translate that to your athletes and they can stay sharp on that. So let's back up for a minute, though. How does Tim Turk become a NHL level shooting coach? Like, let's walk back and down memory lane. I know you go back uh, a little bit there into the mid 90s when you got started. But there's a lot of our athletes who are going to be listening to you here. Um, you know, and I really want them to see how far you came from and see what kind of pedigree that you bring to the, uh, to the skill of shooting. Oh, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, this is, I, I did a, I did an interview with Jeff Blair on Sportsnet Fan 590 a, a few weeks ago about two things about how, how I, how do I become an NHL shooting coach? And, and, uh, number one and number two, actually it was both slap shots as well, which is pretty, pretty ironic. Wing Best movie of shot. all time. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> It's unbelievable uh, the numbers of the slap shot. We'll, we'll get to that if we get the opportunity to. But uh, when, when I was young, uh, coming out of my my bantam and my midget year, um, I had a friend of mine who who knew a goalie coach, and uh, he he just uh, he said, "Listen, uh, I'm getting so busy shooting for this goalie coach. Back then, they didn't have puck shooting machines. So we're talking 30 plus years here, Scotty. And so it, these goalie coaches, they needed to have shooters if they wanted to, or they shot themselves, and it was harder for them to teach." because they're getting uh, fatigued by the time they're at the end of the uh, half-hour session. So um, I actually became a shooter for a goalie coach uh, when I was uh, 16 years old. And um, at that time, you know, we just had a sheet of plastic uh, that was probably about uh, 25, 30 feet away from the net. The goalie had a sheet of plastic that he stood on, and the goalie coach would say, okay, Turk, shoot high glove. Uh, you know, take 10 shots, shoot high glove, then shoot low blocker, then shoot here. And eventually, if that student – was uh, on a progressional session package where he's been 10, 12 sessions. Then he'd say, okay, Turk, shoot high glove and then shoot low blocker a second later. So that, you know, like just different variables that he would teach these goalies. So I would listen to him teach these goalies. He was very, very energetic, very positive. He was always reinforcing positive things. Um, the way that he would teach was, was, uh, was unbelievably motivational for these players to want to, become a goalie and a better goalie. So through me listening to him and how he's teaching was, it kind of helped me to, to understand the aspect of the delivery when teaching. Even though I didn't have that in my mind at the time that I wanted to be a, a shooting coach, I just knew that if I did have the opportunity, I would, be, I would be pretty good at delivering a message if I needed to. Plus he was really technical. And he had like these catchphrases for all kinds of different positions he wanted these goalies to go into. So one day, a couple of years later, fast forward, he comes up to me and uh, another guy that was working with him at the time, and he goes, you guys should open up a shooting school. You know, and we're young kids. We're 18 years old. And we're like, you know what? We don't know anything about business. We like what we're doing right now, so that, I mean, we're just going to stick to shooting. Don't, don't worry. Well, we don't want to do any other business. He's like, okay, whatever. Just kind of like nothing happened. So some more time goes by. I'm not sure, maybe uh, maybe another year or so. And then he, he approaches us again, and he's like, listen, he's like, you guys should open up a shooting school. No one teaches it, technically, and there's nothing like it anywhere. He says, and this is what I'll do for you. He says, I got two guys as shooters, so we would rotate and alternate every other half hour. So I'd go shoot for a half hour, then I'd take a break and go back for another half hour and take another break. So we kind of alternated every, every other half hour kind of thing, Scotty. So eventually what happened was, he said, I'll take one of you to shoot for half an hour, and the other guy can go teach a shooter in my other shooting room over there. So he kind of cleaned out the room and put down some more plastic, put another net in there. And he says, 
I'll let I'll pay you guys the same rate per half hour that you were getting paid, but now you're getting paid every half hour, not every other half hour. So we look at each other and we're like, oh, hang on a second. You know, we're this is now okay, this sounds good. I, I but he says, but listen guys, yeah, you have to make sure you're teaching. This is not just a novelty. You have to be technical. So we took his technical approach, we videotaped ourselves shooting a puck each other. He was a lefty, I was a righty, so it was a great, a great mirror image of what we were doing when we were shooting. And we just watched each other and kind of broke down what, what our shot was doing when we did certain things. Because we could hit spots that we needed to. We got it there quick. You know, we, we were doing a pretty good job back then. Even though, even though we didn't think we could learn more, man, to this day I'm learning more every day still. So so he opened up a shooting room. And then all of a sudden, every half hour, I was teaching shooting or I was shooting for him. So about a year goes by. And this other fellow that I work with, uh, he's a really good guy, a friend of mine. He goes, hang on a second. So he's making this amount of money per half hour while you're shooting. And we're, he's making this much while we're teaching shooting. And we're getting this much. I'm thinking, hang on a second. We can do this. So the business, that's where the business started to flourish. Where it was like, we went to the goalie coach and said, you know, here's what we're thinking. He goes, guys, I know what you're going to say. He goes, good luck. This is when the puck machine started to come in. So he could purchase a puck shooting machine. So we kind of separated ourselves and he set us on our way with open arms, open arms. He's like, go and take on the shooting world because you guys are really good at it. So that's how it started. And here we are today, back way back then when Stamkos was a, a peewee player. He would come into our shooting range and we'd teach Stamkos and Andrew Cogliano and, you know, young players like that, Manny Mahaltra. Uh, and this is from the very beginning days. So those guys would be part of our part of our 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 shooting um, session packages, and the parents would bring them in. So it kind of elevated from there. And this is where I am today. That guy that I worked with, he he moved on elsewhere, and we lost touch. And uh, I elevated myself to the NHL level. Um, I think through 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 being very technical and and helping these players to improve. You know, that's really impressive too. And when I'm hearing and visualizing your journey, I'm thinking, okay, this sounds like someone who you're taking kind of like a playing career, but applying it to coaching now and you're getting better and finding new ways to get better and better. What separated you uh, in, from, from getting, uh, you know, really, really good prospects into your program and, and high level players? What made it be like, okay, Tim Turk's the guy for shooting. This is who you have to see if you want to get that howitzer, you know, if you want to be the next Mike Bossy sniper. What was that in your mind? I think there was a, um, I think there was a transition from, from me, me going out on my own and probably, uh, and I think it was in 1999, I guess, uh, officially uh, became a shooting coach at the NHL level. And what happened from that point was the research and development with all the data that's, that's out there nowadays um, having the ability uh, and passion that's in within me to to learn every day, and there's so kind so many kinds of of things that I can think about that that help me to 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 keep and maintain that passion, which is the young player. And that young player, you never know who's going to be the superstar nowadays, but you just can tell who's going to get close when they have that passion. And then to me, it doesn't matter if you're eight, nine, ten years old. 
15, 16, 17, going through the draft process at an elite level, and then being a, a four, five, or six-year NHL veteran, the players who have that passion to want to consistently improve or maintain what they have or have an open mind at something, even the coaches as well for that matter, those are the people and the players who, who they, they have longevity in their careers. And to me what happened was after all these years have gone by, a lot of shooting schools have opened up in the last 30 years. And one of the things that I feel blessed is that most of these shooting schools are taking somewhat similar approach to the techniques that I've started. Not the same. Everyone's got their own way of doing things. But usually what happens is these, these other coaches that are out there are doing a, a heck of a job at what they're doing. But then what happens is things go up and they start to plateau. They plateau where this it's like a parent will come under 20 the session and said, well, we did that. We've done that same drill or we've done that same process. We're doing the same thing. What's the next step? And the next step is, uh, uh, is me feeling blessed that I get that. I'm kind of like the last line of that type. Whether it doesn't matter how old you are, I'm kind of like that last line where I get to work with a player who's already have a really good foundation from a other skills coach, a shooting coach. And I get to enhance that if they're willing to enhance it. I get to, to add more variety, I get to add more technique, a lot of different terminologies, bring in that, that NHL knowledge of different, there's so many different catchphrases and there's so many different verbiage that these players haven't heard, but is just said in a different way, but it allows them to understand what they're doing well. I don't have to teach sometimes, Scotty. Sometimes I have to show a young player who could be 12 years old at A level, I, I tell them what they're doing well, and then it allows them to connect the mind to the action. And then they can do it quicker. They can accelerate the speed at certain patterns. Or they can add power to it as they make that fine-tuning adjustment through what they're doing well. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like uh, part of your approach is to kind of build the confidence and self-esteem of the athlete at what they're good at and to put that into their wheelhouse. Almost like when you do make those mechanical adjustments that are, you know, might be beyond their mindset at the time that, and they can't comprehend, but they – you start to do them and, but they're so focused on what they're good at. All that's kind of just comes together. And I love that last lion analogy. That's actually a name of a, a small mini documentary I'm going to be doing in the future with a, with a coach who he actually doesn't know, even know what's going to happen. I'm just going to tell him it's going to happen. So it was cool to hear that, that you made that phrase. Now here, now here's something, uh, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, I, and I hate this. I, 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 every time I hear this, I, I feel like it was some house league guy or gal who came up with it and said, oh, the 10,000 puck challenge. And I think that is so dumb. And I know that you're, you're if, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're one puck, take one puck, shoot it a hundred times, not a hundred shots with a hundred different pucks or something yeah, like so, yeah, Lick, similar, Lickty told me something like that. So what is your saying in the, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's not how, and how fast you shoot 100 pucks. It's how and how fast you shoot one puck 100 times. So a lot of players out there, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, yeah, I have hatred, but I try not to say it. But uh, my opinions on that 10,000 puck challenge or 5,000 puck challenge, or you know what, we got two months to shoot 1,000 pucks, or, you know, a coach will instill some sort of, uh, uh, I guess, a program and say, you know what, uh, this month's stick handling month, so we're going to stick handle a ball. Uh, right in front of your body, beside your body, behind your body, and you know, and, and they just try and get through it. 
without thinking about what the body position is, the puck position. So it's the same thing with shooting. It's so important to, to understand that if you're going to – I would rather a player shoot 10 pucks uh, correctly with a focal point than what they're working on uh, per day for a five-day period so they just do 50 shots but at least their body, the puck position, their position is doing the right thing based on what we're focusing on, what they're focusing on, and trying to achieve. And then change that or add variety to it to progress onto something or, or to, I guess, to, um, to, build, to build off of what they started at. Or, uh, you know, you can do, do that build up and then, and then that, that deceleration of those different things as well. So that's exactly a good point. Um, try, not to, try not to focus on the repetition and the quantity, you know, try and focus on the repetition and the quality. And that's the key. Yeah. It's, it's funny how we keep coming back to quality over and over and over again. So let's get micro with what you do. And uh, like Dean, I talked about this before, you know, uh, it's in a course that I'm doing for this podcast, actually London real. They said, you got to get micro when you're, when you're working on your niche and uh, in podcasting, they said, don't say uh, this is personal development for anyone in the world for any age in the world. Uh, for example, for mine, it was, okay, we're doing student athletes, North America, 16 to 21. That's the, that's the audience that we want to target. So when it comes to shooting, picture me, Scott McDonald, 12 years old, a lot more handsome than the figure that's in front of you today, for sure. And a lot more potential too. 12 years old coming to you, got to get the shot going. Not a bad shot, but we know we got to take that to the next level. What, what methods do you get with getting micro when it comes to shooting? Like, what are you looking for in that first assessment of, of the athlete when they first come to you? So it doesn't matter. I mean, when we started this whole process that we spoke about years ago, we were standing on, on a synthetic plastic ice surface. So one of the things uh, back then was, um, you know, we had like a, a system uh, that I kind of created where you would look from head to toe and then from toe to head and like uh, you cover the whole body formation shooting a puck a lot of players what they think is is it's all about the hand and arm technique um, but that's part of it it starts with the foundation of the body position and the control of the body and and how it reacts and, and that's exactly why i love what you said um, we cannot pigeonhole certain players on certain levels into into certain things they need to do uh, technically with their skills. Everyone is different. It's kind of, no one has the same fingerprint and it's the same with the, with the body formation and the body control. And when a, when a player comes into a comfort level and they're doing something like uh, initially for me, a 12 year old beginner to a 12 year old triple A or elite player, I always do the same thing. I get them to stand, let's say in a, to, to create a visual for on the ice, I'll get you in the slot between the hash marks. And um, I'll get you to shoot some stationary pucks. About 10 or 12 of them will do. For me, one or two at this point. But, but 10 or 12 to catch the natural, uh, habitual motion patterns of the player's position. So what I look for is their foot position. Do they face the net? Are they perpendicular to the net? Do they put the puck behind their body? Do they keep it beside them? Uh, is their hip position good? And their shoulder position, their spine angles? Uh, where they're starting that puck, where, where their hand position is as far as range of motion. Like the top hand on your stick does a pulling action. So a lot of players will start and finish that pull in different positions of where the puck starts and where it finishes leaving their blade. Same thing with the bottom hand. It does a pushing motion. 
So the pulling action creates acceleration and velocity. So that's the speed part of the shot, is the pull. The pushing action with the bottom hand, that creates force. So that's a power output. So I watch how they push, what angles they push and pull at, you know, because your stick operates like a, it's like a lever. It's kind of like a, a catapult, per se, but our catapult's just on a different angle. And our, our power position, or our bottom hand, or power hand, we can place that wherever the heck we want on our stick for the type of shot we're taking. We're in a catapult that bottom hand would be in the same place every single time, and we just gotta create force on the top of the pole to, to project something. So we get to project it in two different ways, with a push and with a pull. So I look for all those things, and then ultimately, um, you can check a tension control. So the next step is to take the pucks into the corner or away from them, and then pass it to them, and get them to prepare it while they're stationary. And I usually pass the puck if it's a 12-year-old beginner, I'll pass it to them like a 12-year-old AAA player. If it's a 12-year-old AAA player, I'll pass it to them like an OHL player or a, a major junior player. I'm giving it so much more extra so I can see how they have tension control as that puck hits their blade. Does it bounce off? Is there a cushion? And then how do they prepare it ultimately to release it? And when they've released it, again, what their body's doing, have they transferred their weight? You know, is there a good spine angle? And uh, while I remember, while I'm thinking about it, uh, good shooters, when they shoot, no matter what position they're in, they look like they explode out of their chest. So when you're scouting players or when you're, uh, when you're watching shooting or teaching shooting, you always want that chest to go forward. And the only way to get that chest to go forward is to get the hips to go back. And that's a lot of things that players uh, neglect to try and do you'll see a lot of players with their hips going forward. So it works opposite. If your hips go forward, then your shoulders and chest go back. If your hips go back, then your chest and shoulders go forward. And that's what we're trying to achieve uh, ultimately with the body. So and that's, uh, that's a great way to explain it. So right when you're saying this, I'm thinking, okay, the next time I watch Stamkos, Matthews, Ovechkin, when they're getting ready for the one-timer or the quick release, what, what should I be, if I'm trying to teach myself at home, what should I be zoning in on with, with their, the way they're shooting? What would be some of the small little timbits you could give us? One of the things with all those players is their, their hip action. Uh, not only with their hips going back to take their shot, allowing their chest to go forward, but the rotation torsion of their hips when they're taking those one-timer shots. A lot of players, again, and, and I'm just using these as, as a comparative, suggestive, corrective. What happens is a lot of players are, are it's kind of golfing. You've heard someone say, hey, you're all arms. You're not, you're not using your hips. You're not creating any torsion. And what, what Stam Coast does and, and Ovi, uh, mostly the two of those guys, they create speed and power with their hips. They snap their hips towards the target as that puck is being passed across the ice. And usually, uh, at a high percentage uh, basis, they're already prepared to take the one-timer. A lot of times when players are doing one-timer practicing, um, as the puck's coming across, while it's in motion towards them, that's when they're starting to load to try and impact the puck as it gets close. What I'd like to, to suggest to all the young players out there is, is if you know you can take a one-timer, load up already. Get your... Get your loaded position. Get If you're a righty, get your right right arm back up and away from your body uh, so that when the puck gets to you, all you need to do is just hit it. You don't need to load and then reload and then make impact with it. You're already loaded, so all you have to do is 
is kind of activate your hips, snapping towards the target, and that'll allow your your speed of your hands to accelerate. So the quicker that you snap your hips, Scotty, the faster your hands can come through. And there's a obviously there's a timing to it. How do you get good at it? Repetition. You know, get that practice in. You know, from different angles and different puck speeds. And uh, I was out in Moncton working with the Wildcats, a buddy of mine, uh, Dan Lacroix. Uh, he's an ex-Broad uh, Street bully with the Philadelphia Flyers. And I, I, I met him uh, I, when, I, when I was working with the Montreal Canadiens. He was an, an American League assistant coach with Guy Boucher. And uh, he's a defensive defenseman coach. And uh, he, well, anyways, he, he ended up uh, kind of like going through Tampa Bay Lightning. And then uh, I, when I worked there, you can see here the connections uh, that happen with the circles here. When, when, when I think if you're, if you're good at what you do, they, they kind of bring you where they go. Everyone brings you where they go so you can help as much as possible. So he brought me into Moncton, and um, and his players, a lot of his players on paper were high draft picks. And, um, and he says, I, I got these high draft picks. I can't take one time. So I'm like, well, well, let's go out and see what, what they're working on. You know. So we went to the ice, and one of the things that I noticed was when players work on one-timers, the passer, who's normally a teammate, were passing the puck at the same speed every time. So it kind of like it gets you into this habitual uh, technical motion pattern that you know that pass is going to come at the same time. There's no pressure on you. So one of the suggestions I made was uh, just with that alone, there were other suggestions, but it was like change that puck speed up. You know, get that puck speed coming over at a high rate of speed, slow it right down, you know, because that allows them to make their adjustments. But uh, critically and surgically to take that shot, you got to engage your hips. So when I brought their hips into play for full rotation, um, it elevated the shot speed. And, and I'll tell you, the radar gun does not lie. <laughs> you can, you know, and sometimes it takes, sometimes it takes one or two, and some players can make those adjustments right away, and they see that result ultimately quickly. And uh, other players, it takes time. It takes time for them to, to generate that, that motion pattern. And then once they get it, and they feel comfortable at it, if they're willing to work on it, then they'll be able to accelerate it in that power. And it's interesting too, when, uh, how seriously professionals will take it. If you look closely at a warm up, because I was always like, I, I love one timers and shooting. And like I said, the slap shot, that was my go-to. And, uh, it gets frustrating too when a teammate doesn't give you that strong quality pass that you're looking for, just kind of lofts it in there and you'll see them send it back with yeah. force and say, Hey, send it back to, to make sure they keep in those good habits. So it's interesting how like, a, you know, it's success leaves clues is a saying that I've come accustomed to. And that's one little thing there to, to notice too. It's not just, Oh, it wasn't positioned perfectly. No, it's not, not that speed that they're looking for to really, you know, get the feel for it before a game. So talk to me about, you know, staying micro with this, the, the physical feature of some of these guys who have the better shot. When I think of this, I'm thinking, you know, the weight transfer and the power being generated from the legs, having your strong core. But I think range of motion when you're talking about, you know, really using your hips to explode out, you know, it go, starting from the bottom, winding up, following all the way through. That's a long range of motion to really get that one timer off or, or that or, you know, that big wind up. Um, it, is that is that what you've seen through a lot of the players? Because you know a lot of people would think get big, strong upper upper body, do the wrist rolls like young blood back in the day, you know, with the weight on the end of the uh, the shortened stick. Um, like, what do you see in these players? Like, how how physically strong are these guys who get those big hundred mile per hour plus shots? That's that's a that's a really good question, Mac. One of the things that comes to mind right away is sometimes it's it's not about being able to create that power output because there's a technique to everything. 
Yes. So the issue is, you know, like one of the things that I come across all the time is, well, you know what, my son's a hundred pounds, so I guess he should have a 50 flex stick. The, the flex of a stick and how it matches a player has absolutely nothing to do with their weight. It has everything to do with their technique. So picture this, you got two 12 year olds, they're both play double A or they're triple A players, whatever level they are, but they're similar in the same, the same level. And one of the 12-year-olds has a 90 flex and the other one has a 45 flex. And they do the same type of technique. Uh, the one with the 90 flex, the puck just won't elevate and it's not coming off hard and it's hurting his hands. The 45 flex kid's taking the same kind of shot, whether it's a one-timer, a quick release, or a clapper, and that puck is coming off like a rocket. That's because his stick matches what he's doing with his technique. Uh, the stick is the more critical point uh, it, it takes – that could be another another subject matter because, uh, to me, that stick is an extension of your body. It's got to be right for you. You should. I get that question all the time about about the technical side of how to create power, and I, uh, I don't get into arguments, but I make a suggestion based on making them understand that, well, if the stick curve, lie, and flex and height doesn't match what that player's actual technique is, then they're not going to get the result they want. The last thing we want to do, Mac, is we don't want to have to force that puck to make it spin. You know, when it comes off our blade, no matter what we do, it, it should be spinning tightly. The puck should spin tight so that it can fly through the air. The flight path of the puck should be straight, shouldn't be wobbly, shouldn't be to one angle, one side, it's got to go straight. And that's one of the biggest challenges nowadays is getting players to use the right stick because John Tavares uses a CCM. So every, every, when he uses a CCM, he's my favorite player. So little Johnny wants to go out and use a CCM, but they might not have a curve that he needs. Well, it's interesting, you know, cause I was really, I was all about stick selection growing up and I'll tell you what I used when I was 12. It made in Canada, 9950 Sherwood. So it's a wood stick, Paul coffee curve, 5.5 lie, which was very crucial for me. Not five, not six. 5.5 it had to be. And 115 flex. And it was, an, it was a senior stick at 12 years old. I'm, I'm about five foot six, 130 pounds at that time. And that was perfect for the slap shot, which, you know, looking back, and I did it a bit taller. Like if I was on my skates, I wouldn't have it at my chin. I'd have it at my lips because I just felt like I needed that extra couple of inches. And I was a winger, but you know that's something maybe a defenseman would use, and that's more. And coffee is a defenseman because as I got older, I learned you know you don't have the time to get the big shot off anymore, and I had to switch. I had to go to a Drury, which is a totally different curve, and not to mention it's if you put the blade flat, that that comes into it too. It sits differently, but that was the perfect stick for the snapshot and for the backhander. So it's interesting how that evolution can happen when it comes to your stick selection. Is, uh, is that something that comes in uh, to mind when you, when you, when you see a, a young athlete comes to you? You say, hey, you know what? For what I'm seeing in your mechanics, we have to change it up. We have to make some tweaks to the, to the piece of hardware you're using. Absolutely. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, it's uh, the, uh, the tool or like you said, the hardware, um, that's a big part of it that people don't, uh, they don't realize that. You know, for, like, it's funny because I was in, uh, I was in Vilnius, Lithuania, um, for my last trip, and I thank God got back home here. But uh, a couple of the players, their dads played on the on the national team, and these kids were 10 and 11 years old, and they had their dad's stick. 
So I went, I'm going to the dad saying, listen, I mean, yeah, if you trust me, then you got to do this. You got to change the stick. You got to get them into a junior stick uh, because their, their technique's just not, it's not supporting that stick that they're using. They need to be able to flex it. And one of the rule of thumbs I have, and I like how you said you, you brought that stick a little higher. I mean, it's a personal thing, uh, depending on, on what your type of player you are. A lot of times, I, I just watched the video before we jumped on here. Uh, there's a guy that was, that was very passionate about helping players, and, and everyone's putting out videos uh, challenging players to, to, to do all kinds of different things, which I encourage you to do. Um, he's like, you know what? Like, as a forward, when I played forward, uh, I want to make sure my stick was just under my chin because I had to control the puck well. And my buddy is a defenseman the same size as me. Uh, he was saying, he says, his stick's up just up over his nose because he's a D-man because he needed to, to use his stick for more reach purposes. And I needed to use the stick because I wanted to have more control. If I was closer to my body with my stick shorter. And here's the shooting coach sitting back watching the video going, well, to me, everything in hockey should end in a shot. Whether it's a form of a pass, it does the same motion pattern. When you pass a puck, other than when you sauce it, Scotty, Everything's pretty much does the same thing. One hand pushes, one hand pulls, and it's different for everybody. So because everything, I believe, should end in a shot, your stick should be right for your shot. So work on your stick. Get the best shot you can. Be as most comfortable as you can. And then you can work on the control part and the reach. You shouldn't reach anyways anymore. you got to use your legs nowadays because the game is elevated to this non-obstructive or clutching and grabbing an uh, interference kind of game to speed. So the reaching part, you always want to keep that puck in a protective, pre, uh, prepared position and have the best shot that you can when, uh, when you have the ability to take a shot or give a pass. So I don't know if that makes sense, but, but it's pretty critical. Um, the rule of thumb that I have is with your skates on, uh, I like to make sure, depending on your age, you know, like a, an NHL player, elite player, or someone who's fully grown, guys like us, uh, we can pick our spot and leave it there forever. But that 12-year-old player, um, like your nephew, for instance, he's growing. And what happens is in a two- or three-month period, he's grown to one centimeter, two, maybe two-and-a-half centimeters. But he's had the same stick and forgot to let that grow with him. So then the next year comes, he's going, ah, I use a short stick. And I'm like, well, you didn't use a short stick last year. You know, it was taller then. So we got to make sure that we're, we're, we're uh, educating all the parents out there, all the players out there, that if you do grow a little bit, keep track of your growth rates. Because you got to use them for two things. One, your levers and your extremities got to match your growth. So you got to work on that in the gym. Then number two, uh, you have to ensure that that stick grows with you. Uh, whether it's a, a half a centimeter, a millimeter, two millimeters, you know, go get a plug and add an extension if you have. If you're lucky enough to have the same stick, I don't know. I go through a stick a week, but you know, it's it's uh, it's crazy. It's crazy that that this information needs to be uh, needs to be out there for the players. Well, it's funny. Every time I'm about to, to move on to the next topic, you already briefly touch on this. So I love how you're just flowing through this right now. And I was going to get down to stick quality and durability. I deal with so many parents who say, I don't know what's happened to my kid's shot. Okay, it's February. When, when was the last time? How old's the stick? Well, we, we got it. We, last year's Provincials is when we started using it. And I'll go back to that 9950 Sherwood, the old man. He, my brothers and I, we all got six sticks each. They cost 25 bucks at the time, you know, and even, and even then he's like, after six, that's it. That's too expensive. And he was getting deals on them through his buddy. But we, I remember my thing was 
six games and uh it was uh so that would be three weeks and that would be a total of 12 practices and by that time the blade was kind of wearing and then we would get the next stick for the next game and the and that would become the, the first stick would become the backup we use that in practice and we had the game stick because then we could let the game stick last for 12 games and then it would just keep going and by the end of the year you'd get there but i find that players and parents they don't really take good care of that piece of equipment. They just let it wear out and they do wear out. And I understand they're $300, but it is important. If you're a shooter, you know, have, breaking out that, sh- that nice sharpened sword, you know, to, to do what team you did in his rookie year. <laughs> Absolutely. Need yeah. That. Yeah. So what, what's your, what's your um, stance on that? Like obviously the sticks are, are of higher quality, they're higher durability, but changing your stick out, your game stick, I'll call it, you know, to, so we can simplify this. You know, how important it is to keep that game stick's durability if it's starting to wear down to, to switch it out? I think, you know, that's a great question. To me, to me, like, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very blessed that I, I, I'm under sponsorships with a lot of different companies. And one of the things that I can do um, as, as a, uh, an NHL-level shooting coach is I get my own custom pattern. And that doesn't mean that that, that 12-year-old, you know, I, I guess we're focusing on this peewee age, but the 12-year-old player, doesn't matter how old you are or what level you play, uh, I always encourage that that the, the sticks you have, whether it's your game stick or your backup, that number one, they're identical. They're identical. They're the same stick. So it's not like you've gone from a, uh, a, a certain manufactured product to a different one, from a Sherwood to a Warrior or, or a CCM to a Bauer or something like that because the curves won't be the same even if you think they look they are, if they look like they are. One of the other things is, as far as a stick longevity is concerned, and man, you're right. I guess they started making these graphite composite sticks for longevity for these young players of today, but they've raised the prices. Uh, they do fatigue. And it doesn't matter if it's a 12-year-old using it, an 8-year-old, or a guy like us is using it. They eventually fatigue. Obviously, with a guy like us using them, they fatigue a lot quicker. They're, they, they, they lose their – the word they, that people are saying is pop. They lose their pop. There's no more kick return technology that's left that just feels like it's dying on me. Well, once that feel comes, you can turn that into a backup. It's time to bring out a new one. And the issue is, is that usually what happens is more so than not, that new one that comes out breaks. You know, all, the, all of a sudden it snaps. Well, and then the parent's like, well, we're not going to get you the same one because that's a $300 stick. And then I'm the shooting coach sitting back going, okay, hang on, time out. Let's see if we can sacrifice somewhere, whether it's through a training payment, whether it's through going out to dinner with the family, but let's sacrifice a payment so that we can get little Johnny into a second identical stick again, just because he broke it. Whether it's under warranty or not, let's get the identical stick. And I guess a lot of the times what happens is, is when that stick breaks, and it's replaced with a brand new one of the same kind, and that parent has done that reluctantly, even if they, the affordability is so critical now with everything that's going on with these players growing and all their equipment that they need. I get that. But that confidence level is not gained through an elbow pad. It's not gained through a helmet. It's gained through their stick. So if you can find a way to sacrifice to get that high-end stick, for there's so many reasons to have the highest-end stick out there. And one of them is balance and weight. So it's like buying a car. You buy a Cavalier 
or you buy a smaller model car, you're getting smaller model things. You buy a Cadillac, you're getting a lot of different types of options, bells and whistles. The same with a hockey stick, the higher end the model is, the lighter it is, the quicker you can move it in a shorter distance, no matter how old you are. And then that's when you get that, get that confidence. Hey, I'm walking into the rink here, and I know I'm a house league player, um, but do I need that expensive stick? Maybe not. But the fact that I have it, it's going to make me confident to go out there and use it. The one thing that I've always been kind of, I've always shied away from when I go to a retailer and they try to push the pro stock stick on me. And I remember uh, Brian Creighton, I think, I think if you remember Cody Creighton and uh, John Anderson and Spencer Anderson, that whole family there, uh, they've taught me a lot about, because uh, John, you know, playing for the Leafs and, and coaching in the, the Wolves in the AHL, uh, learned a lot of the ins and outs of what the pros are getting and what the pro stock is. And the pro stock is really the patterns and, and the sticks that, it's like what Molson's does when it throws out a beer. It was 50 milliliters too light in the bottle. They had to chuck it. And that's why those warranties aren't there. And anytime I've gotten a pro stock stick, <clears throat> I don't like it. It feels bulky. I remember the first time I went to John and I was so proud because I brought this pro first time, first and only time I bought a pro stock. I brought it to him like, yeah, you know, it's a pro stock, you know, whatever curve it was. He says, now hang on a second. And this is when he was with the Minnesota wild. And uh, he had one of uh, Boudreaux sticks um, with him. He says, here, hold this. I couldn't even feel it in my hand. It was so light. <laughs> and it, it, it was incredible. I'm like, oh, my God. And it, it, it was a, it's at a different level. And even uh, w- with Cody Creighton, who's been on the show earlier, he, he's the same thing with skates, too, because um, that's stick and skates, like the two most important pieces. Uh, I saw him at the arena uh, before this whole COVID-19 thing happened. And I said, oh, you finally got some new wheels. He's like, yeah, they're Jeff Carter's old model. They, uh, he took a shot off the ankle and it cracked. So this is, it got refurbished. And uh, my, the equipment guy I know there, and uh, he said, hey, do you want Carter's skates? And he's, I'm like, yeah, sure. He's like, you won't believe I don't even have to push to get these things going. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's unbelievable. The technologies that, that are happening with those and how they do that. And I just wanted to touch on something. You, you, I think you triggered something here, Scotty, which is really cool. You know, and I question people all the time in, in a jokingly kind of way where I, I'd ask, I'd ask, you know, the parents, I'd say, listen, um, does, uh, does little Johnny have a skating coach? And I got, yep, yep, we go to a skating coach once a week, just like we come to you once a week. And I said, well, if you went up and asked your skating coach what the most important piece of equipment is, what do you think they'd say? So, you know, the skates, you know, because the skating coach, so the skates got to be tied up properly, got to be fitted properly, you know, and they got to be, uh, they got to be, uh, profiled properly and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, like profiling a skate. And, and when I started to get educated on equipment and, and it, cause I need to know uh, how to help these players shoot more and believe it or not, I need to know about elbow pads. I need to know about shoulder pads, their ranges of motion. Uh, more importantly, I need to know about their skates and their profiles and how players skate and all that kind of stuff. So that's parents says, well, the skating, well, it's, it's gotta be the skates, most important equip, piece of equipment. And then I say, well, what do you think? I, I think it's the most important piece of equipment as a shooting coach on a stick. And I'm like, yeah, but there's one more piece. There's one more piece of equipment that's more important than, than both of them. What do you think it is? Well, they all say jock. They'll say like, a, you know, something like, I go, no, no, no. You got to think, think psychologically and technically. Technically, what's the most important piece of equipment that player has? And uh, then they think about it, they think about it, and uh, they're like, I don't know. Shit, uh, what is it? Uh, well, it's the mind. It's the brain. It's the brain and how it acts. That's the most, and this is a jokingly kind of thing about equipment where, you know, if that player's not using their mind 
properly, if they're not getting the proper training, then they can't apply everything they're learning in their, with, from their skating coach. They can't apply everything they're learning from me. So we've got to find a way to help build that confidence so that they're making the right choices at the right times in the situation they're in when they're in their games. So that's why it's so critical. You can teach a technical skating stride, but if you don't create a situation or you don't let them create their own situation, that's something that they might come across in a drill, um, then it's pretty much not going to be effective, the type of thing that you're teaching or the delivery or whatever you're focusing on. The same thing with shooting. I let my players, you know, it's funny because I don't, I rarely use cones. I rarely use obstruction unless there's a specific thing that we need to work on based on what I've received in a report or I've seen with my own eyes that particular player do something during a game, then I'll create something to, to help them with that. Otherwise, I let them go on their own. And I get I get criticized all the time. They're like, uh, how do you coach, how do you teach shooting in the NHL? You don't even use cones. You don't even use devices. I'm like, well, when we play the game, usually there's no cones on the ice. And, you know, like there's, there's no other these big sticks and all these things to jump over and stuff like that. So I want to get them in their natural environment as much as possible, even though there's no pressure. You know, creating that pressure situation is a different, a different story. But, but that's what I try to get at with, with everything that's going on out there is try to let these players, on all you guys out there listening, um, you guys pretend all the time. You know, and, and it's okay to do that. It's okay to pretend, visualize, and, you know, tell yourself that you're going to do something uh, while you're on the ice and do it. It doesn't have to be when you're away from the rink. It can be when you're on the rink and on the ice too. Yeah, it's uh, – it, and this, you know, you said something that triggered my, my mind. I remember watching uh, the Hockey Legends documentary and Phil Esposito was on it. And, uh, well, it was actually his segment. And it's the title was – the theme of his episode was Sooner or Later It Comes to the Slot sooner or later and it then that reminded me even more about a coach i had bill shadlock uh who he was phenomenal uh in the heyday when my brother played and and when he started coaching me and he said okay yeah the slot's good everyone knows that but the defenseman will hang out there too and he had a concept called the soft spots the low the low soft spot and the high soft spot which is the inside part of each circle cut it in half so you have a quarter of each because he said, if, the, if you're on the weak side, <clears throat> you're going to the low soft spot because no defenseman's dumb enough to go there and cover you because now the hole in the front of the net's open. He said the same thing. If you're on the strong side, you're in the high soft spot. Still, the defenseman is not dumb enough to go out there. And it, it was an incredible concept. And you're right. There's a psychology to shooting and scoring. Like it is timing. You have to, you know, you're finding the right opportunity. You're, you're in a search mode. If you don't have the puck, you're looking to be in the best position possible to increase that scoring chance. Cause let's face it. That's what, that's what the game is. You don't score, you don't win. So it's amazing that, that you know, when you bring up that mind concept and it's funny, you know, with every coach and yourself I've talked to, we're not talking about here's the secret drill to become the best shooter. Here's the secret sauce. We're talking about, you know, the athlete, the person, you know, understanding what they're dealing with in a specialty like this, you know, who, who are some of the athletes that you've dealt with who they're, they're shooting IQ and that doesn't mean just the shot, but the way to get them in the best probability for, to get that shot off. Like who, who are some of the stronger athletes that you've worked with and what makes them special to be able to put themselves in that shooting opportunity so often? I think, I think the number one thing that I think about it, the first player that comes to mind, and I mean, this guy's 
I know we're in Leaf Nation, and this guy is, is hated by a lot of teams and players, Brandon Gallagher. So I've been working with him a long time. And one of the things that, one of the things that he does is he's got a willingness to improve every day, but he does it through a high level of work ethic. And he tells himself he needs to build his confidence by taking shots from any opportunity he gets when he gets the puck. Um, so the thought process that goes into that is having the ability to get that puck prepared when you receive it from any position or you, you prepare it from any position, no matter what angle it comes in at. And I want to, I want to add something that you just said, a key word you said, uh, Scotty was search. You said, you know, when you go into a search mode, um, players, players have search levels. And I think I've been, I think I've been involved in creating certain components on, on scouting reports uh, based on some verbiage and some things that they could look for. One of them is search. So search levels are, you know, a player gets a puck stolen off of them, uh, them to research it uh, at a 30% level means they're not getting it back. So if you want to search out a puck or you want to search out an area or you want to search out the ability to dissect or the ability to escape or any ability to control and, and shield the puck for that matter, uh, it has to be at the highest level. You have to think 100% of searching things. And that, that goes for everything um, skill-wise, right from an actual motion skill to a thought process skill. And, and that's what I would say. So Brandon Gallagher, a guy like him, another guy like Max Pacioretty, I used to work with this guy in Montreal named Placanic. Um, him, their, their ability um, to get the shot off in traffic is incredible. Another guy would be Andrew Ladd. Andrew Ladd, like him, him getting in tight as a lefty, he was one of the best, in my opinion. Uh, he would get in tight and shoot. A lot of players get in tight and do a little deep move and chip, chip the puck in, you know, forehand to backhand chip uh, or backhand to forehand chip. But he would shoot it across the goalie, across his body and into the net, not at the goalie, uh, in, in from a tight situation. So these, these players, and there's a, a big list that I could keep going on and on, um, but ultimately Tarasenko is another one. His release is, is so quick and deceptive and, and accurate, uh, it, it's unbelievable. Uh, but, uh, but it's all about having the mindset and the, the want to be confident enough to get that shot off. And no matter what happens – you know, initially, if that if you don't score, you don't get it through. Then that search comes in. Then that reactive mode comes in for for the puck hunger uh, to search it out and get it back as quick as possible, so we can get another opportunity. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and when you're when we talk more about that search mode, sometimes people think, oh, they're just waiting for opportunity. And really, it's when you do things right, people don't think you're doing anything at all. And I think that's the the way, the way to put it there. So exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what is, what is some of these guys, you know, like how frequently are these guys working on a skill such as the shot? There's so many skills to be worked on. Dan Church from York University and I were talking like the massive amount of support staff and management and medical and strength conditioning skills, coaches, specialty coaches, the bench staff alone, the owners that no one likes, <laughs> you know, except when they, except when they sign that payday check, <laughs> you know, um, you know, like how frequently does, you know, a, a top level athlete work with someone like yourself? Well, it's, 
off season, uh, usually I, I built up a, uh, I want to say between a seven to 10 year, uh, I guess I'm busy and pre-booked a long, long time. So usually what happens is uh, because I, I can't work with them on a frequent basis, uh, we use stuff like this. Uh, we'll go back and forth, whether it's just through a text, a phone call, or something like that, where I would never interrupt the player's training regimen, their scheduling, uh, whatever their itinerary is, but I'll sit back and have an, an open phone and they can get in touch with me whenever they want. And usually the players who, who like we spoke about with that high level of search, uh, those are the guys that will keep in constant contact with me. So it, it just depends on, on the scheduling. The younger players um, that have the ability to do so, usually I'll work with 10 or 12 teams in a season and uh, visit them once a week every week. So they get me every week for 20 sessions, possibly 22 sessions. Uh, but they also come for extra help in private or small group or semi-private sessions as well. So that, I guess that frequency is kind of different based on the level that you're at and what you can apply when you learn it. So that NHL guy, like Brendan Gallagher, you know, we keep in touch pretty frequently. You know, just because uh, I think because it's a, it's a mentorship that I'm offering and a friendship that's built up uh, over a certain amount of time. And that's what happens with players. And it doesn't matter. I build friendships with 12-year-olds who, who have the ability to do a weekly session with me in a private setting. And, and that's the key. But, but knowing when to to apply the next progression based on the technique that we're trying to, to bring to as close to perfection as possible. Um, we have to make sure we have the ability to, to progress based on their ability to learn. So sometimes it's an introduction to a new type of shot. Sometimes it's like revisiting something that we've done two years ago to, to bring back that memory and say, oh, gee, oh yeah, my body's got to be in this position and I forgot about the silent release. So I'm glad we're revisiting this silent release because I can use it as a weapon in the future. So sometimes it's revisiting things, sometimes it's reinventing and other times it's installing in, into new progression. Silent release, I haven't heard of that before. Can you elaborate a bit on the silent oh, release? Absolutely. So what makes me successful is having, I think partly being passionate about researching and development and I guess one coach that I had the opportunity to have lunch with one time, we can talk about this. This could be another, another session later on down the road. But I asked him, and he was one of the most iconic winningest coaches in NHL history, and you might, you might get close to who we're talking about here. I'm not going to name any names. But I asked him, I said, I said, what makes you so good at what you do? And you probably get this question every time, but you're a great bench coach. You're a great practice coach. You, you address the media phenomenally. Like, like, what is it that makes you the way you are? And he just turned to me and he said, you know what, Turkey? He says, what makes me good is that everywhere I go, I constantly remind myself of a little note um, at, at my door as I'm, as I'm ready to go through my door. And it says, what are you going to learn and from who? What are you going to learn today and from who are you going to learn it from? So I think what it, with, when it comes to me, I've been studying these goalie coaches for years and years and years. And, and the one thing I know about goalie coaches and skills coaches is that us skills coaches, we're outnumbered by goalie coaches. <laughs> so, so it's important for me to understand what they're teaching the goalies. And one of the things they're teaching the goalies nowadays, because there's so much movement on perimeter, 
you know, you'll see teams in five on five. They'll set up in D zone cover and they'll allow perimeter passing to take place. So they'll go down the wall, into the corner, up the wall, up to the point. You know, maybe that, that player will pass it across the point or they'll, they'll take ice into the middle and that forward will come up the wall. They'll relieve it back down there and try and get a shot from the perimeter. So what goalie coaches are teaching goalies is because usually if there's any type of perimeter passing going on, what's going on in front? There's traffic. There's traffic in front of the net. So that goalie will be looking through the traffic as, there, as that puck is being moved around. So they'll, they'll track it. They'll see it. Then they'll lose track through that traffic that's in front of the impaired screen setup or layered screening through their player and the offensive player. Then they'll see it again. So when they lose track of that puck, Scotty, and a shot's taking place, if they snap it, then the goalie hears the acoustics. They get big. They get, they get bigger on that acoustics because they're not sure exactly where it's going. But if they see it, they can be sure when it's coming off. But if they don't hear it, kind of like a spy. Spy throws that silencer on their gun because they don't want anyone to hear their, that they're going to be shooting something. It's the same thing from perimeter. If you use that old style wrist shot release, just the old pushing motion with no load, no sound, if the goalie's lost sight of it, then they can't get big. They won't get big. So that allows us to either score if it's where we want to, if we put it where we need to at that time, or it allows us to create a second chance opportunity because it'll normally hit them and react. There'll be a reactive second chance opportunity if they haven't heard that shot and it doesn't go where we want it to go. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's, again, this has triggered something, another analogy or, or method that uh, Brian Creighton had told me one time. So when him, John Anderson, Mark Napier, Gabby Boudreau, when they were playing for George Armstrong at the Toronto Marlboros, they said the, be- the thing that he was the best at, for one, they couldn't touch him. He was just so big and strong and he protected the puck. He put his bass in between them and they couldn't get it off him at, at scrimmage. But he said the one thing that he tried to teach them all and they couldn't do it until later in their career was in warm-up. Coming out of the corner, the simple just around the horn and shoot. But the way he wanted them to do it was crossing their feet in motion and releasing the puck at the same time without making a sound. And there was some, like, you're talking Tonelli, Napier, Anderson, Boudreaux, some really top-level top goal scorers in, in their junior days. And they said it was so difficult. And the way you described that, it sounds a lot like what he was doing. And, and that's going back to the 60s. So it's really cool how these concepts, you know, these little – you know, micro parts of the game. And again, we're not talking uh, a certain drill here or, or buy this next new cool stick or whatever, you know, we're talking about like just the, the person being able to do that. And it's so cool how this is all starting to connect. It's really, it's, re- it's really fascinating actually. Absolutely. Yeah. It's re-evolving. Everything's re-evolving. And uh, well, one of the things, but, but if someone can't recognize what these micro things are, and then it's going to be hard for someone to teach it. And that's, you know, that, that, that's the thing that sets me aside, being so blessed to, to have the ability to read what you're talking about in that silent release while the feet are moving in a crossover, for that matter. I mean, if you shoot with your feet moving and there's no sound on it, that's probably one of the most deceptive ways. Uh, there are others, but one of the most deceptive ways to shoot a puck. Um, as long as you're doing the right technique, you know, adding that downward pressure with no sound, to create that power while your feet are moving in a crossover, whether you're crossing over into your strong side, so a righty is going like to the right crossover and a lefty goes to the left or the opposite. A righty's going to the left and a lefty's going to the right. 
being able to keep that puck in a prepared position on the front of your blade while your feet are moving is a challenge. But if you practice it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be detrimental to you getting that that scoring opportunity, or it's going to help you to create more offense for sure. Has the phrase uh, "the puck has eyes" ever come into your teachings? Like I know. Um, when one thing I love to do is come on my off wing, get the goalie out, and I know my stick is far out to the left, and I just do a little saucer pass, you know, right beside their leg pad because I know they're not going to go down. They're going to try and stand up still. And even though I can only see the goalie, my stick is, you know, five, six feet to my left, and I'm aiming for that far post. Is that a concept that you've ever put into your teachings before, or do you have a different way of explaining that? All the time, all the time. But, you know, the goalie has to line up on the puck, you know. But now things are changing because if you think of this, um, when players are lefties and the puck's on the left side of their body and it's kind of outward, it's not fully extended. We don't want to put them in a reach situation, but it's not in the regular release position. It's out there. It's kind of like here, here, kitty, kitty, here, kitty, kitty. You know, like let's go for that. And then when the player goes for it, the toe drag takes place, and and then, and then we go around the player. Same with the goalie. So you're doing the, the you're setting them up. You're putting a carrot out there. You're dangling that carrot. Most of the time, if you were to shoot that puck, would it go out more before you shoot it or come in? Most of the time, it comes in. It's being dragged in. So goalies now. Uh, they're not setting up on the puck. So you're, it's really cool. They're setting up kind of like in between the puck and the body, thinking if it's a shot that's coming, they're going to set up. And, it, and to them, two inches is setting up in between, and it's not a big deal opening up. When you do that and you get close and they don't move, and then all of a sudden you just sauce it. Every shot, you're right. It does not have to be a full power. It's got to be in the right position, released at the right time. And, and to me, that's like a chess move. And you've, you've, you've done that chest move and you've kind of like dangled that carrot and that's a phenomenal thing. So yes, the, uh, the, the puck's eyes are way different from, from our eyes and from our hands. And we could, it's this small, uh, a, a guy named Kovalev one day, he said, he said, you know, there's a, the puck's this big and it's this thick. It's like an inch thick. There's no reason why I can't put it where I want, what I want. No reason. And if I don't, it's because I made a little bit of a mistake and I got a, I got to refix my mistake and start from scratch again and go, you know, so yeah, that's a great confidence attitude to have that guy. He, he, he taught me a lot about puck control. I'll tell you that. He scored a few goals in his day for sure. And, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's interesting that you bring that concept up. I was talking to Topher Scott from the hockey think tank podcast. Good buddy of mine. Yeah. Toph. He's a foot taller every time I see him. <laughs> <laughs> standing on a box yeah <laughs> and he and he was saying you know and i'm really excited to be listening to um you know the, the relationships that you build with other coaches and he says that's why sweden and finland's doing such a great job with their development program because all the coaches no matter even if they're competitors they're sharing ideas and information because they're trying to make the player as best as they can we're still here in north america you know we have that you know you, you recruit the super team mentality you see a lot of it in the gthl as kids grow up um, you know, how, how much is it changing with coaches like yourself and bench bosses and, and that all working uh, more together to share that information so that we can, you know, build the best game possible and keep excelling and, and making it more, you know, world class than it's ever been before. Is, it, is that getting better or is there still in North America a bit of the, well, no, I, my, I'm with these guys over here, you're with those guys over here, so we can't be seen, seen with each other type of attitude? Yeah, I think, you're, I think we're talking about uh, both scenarios there 
Uh, and I can't believe you brought up Finland and Sweden, but I remember my first time working with the national program 2012 in, in, in Finland, and I walked into their testing facility, and these players were, you know, they're doing their VMAX and, and all kinds of different uh, uh, tests, you know, like somewhat similar to the combine testing, but it was a little bit more intricate. These guys that were testing these guys, the players, Scotty, they had lab coats on. Lab coats. And, and the things that they were, the data they were collecting on the VMAX, I was, I was astonished how, how they were collecting things. But, but the funny thing is, when you bring up that word sharing, every coach in Finland got every information on every player uh, that played in the national level program. So it was like you could be coaching the U6s, their, their, their inaugural beginning IP year, and you're getting all the test results of every player that from all the coaches and all their drills and everything that they do. So the sharing over there is way ahead than our sharing over here. I feel that, that as, a, as a skills coach, um, particularly specialty in technical shooting, um, I feel it's getting better, but there's still roadblocks. There's still – you know, there's skills, and I'm not talking about bench coaches or, or minor hockey coaches. I mean, they got so much um, ability to obtain things, you know, through through the uh, sources that are online and, and other coaches. Uh, there are sharing sites out there, but but the skills coach aspect of of the teaching program um, is is uh, is still is still having issues with. You know, like I teach this way, you teach that way. Uh, you know, like this this guy, and then they start talking about each other and and stuff like that. To to me, to me, I mean, in, in all these years, I I feel so blessed that I've never ever. Uh, I guess I'm waiting for the bomb to go off. I've never had any negative issues with anybody ever. You know, that's because one of the things I focus on as a skills coach is uh, I know of other people that are teaching that. I've been around for years. I see it all. And it's my job to research everyone and what they're teaching because maybe I can take something from it and learn things. And then, then there's stuff where I'll be doing stuff and the skills coach or a shooting coach might say, well, I wouldn't do that. And that's great, you know, to make sure what, what they're doing, taking our information. But, but you don't want to talk negatively about anybody. Um, one thing that I would highly recommend, and number two, uh, that information that you're putting out there, uh, to me, everyone should be able to use it. And there's still coaches out there uh, in in our areas that are telling people no note taking, you know, no don't you're not allowed no videos coming in here. Uh, it doesn't matter what we do. We don't care if you're a parent, whatever. It's still out there, and I mean, I can see that evolving into something a lot better with uh, with how we're handling things now through social media. I just wish that every coach would put their information out there. If you feel like you've created something or you've pioneered something and it's just yours and you don't want to share it, then you're not in the right industry. In my opinion, uh, you should, uh, you should allow people to take what you feel you've pioneered, uh, not to break down and, and, uh, and, you know, like to give feedback on what they think is right, but just have the ability to have access to everything that you think you've pioneered is, is important in my opinion to everybody. You know, Jim Rohn, the business influencer and philosopher of, uh, you know, the seventies and eighties said, you're going to get what you want by helping others get what they want. You just can't get in the way of what they want. You know, and I think that's so important, especially in coaching today. 
Um, because a, a lot of the time it's like, Hey, you guys might be working together on a staff in the future, especially at the pro level, because the ownership wants to make sure they're building what's considered their dream team when it comes to that kind of thing. So I think that's extremely important. One thing, one more thing I just want to touch on about in Sweden and Finland, cause Topher brought this up yesterday and cause you'd mentioned the combine testing. He said they were more interested, not in the, the amount of reps or the actual output, but how, who could fight the longest at the very end to squeeze off, you know, that last rep or to dig the deepest there. Is that something that you notice too? And even just in your, your workings, is that something that you've noticed with those athletes, uh, you know, overseas, they, that little, that extra little 5% that you give at the end, they really know how to exert that more than say what a more entitled type of mentality here is in North America. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I noticed that. I noticed that with the European players specifically out there in Scandinavian areas. And, and I think, I think a lot of it um, has contributed to uh, the type of coaching that they're getting. You know, if we, if we rewind 10 years, uh, they're trying to get that, that last set of energy or that burst of power emotion out uh, when they're fully fatigued in a negative way, 10, 12, 14 years ago. Now, now you can see it's turned into an evolution of encouragement. You know, like they're encouraging these guys to give it a little more. You know, and, and, and I guess it ultimately comes down to that athlete. doesn't matter what sport you're in, but uh, obviously we're talking about hockey. It comes down to that athlete, Scotty, for them to want to give more. And, and I'm seeing it more and more um, overseas than I do here in North America. I'm actually, you know, not to talk years off, but I, I'm actually recognizing that, that these European countries, more specifically uh, Russia, Finland, Sweden, even the Czechs, in in in, uh, in the Czech Republic, they're starting to elevate. They're starting to separate from us North Americans, uh, and that's why we're having so many problems, uh, in my opinion, in our development stream uh, when it comes to to the national level. There's like everything that we do is old, so it's it's time it's time. And this is a recommendation suggestion. It's time for a lot of us to uh, you know to to add to to our development. And that's why that sharing part of things is so critical, you know, to, to but you got to want to look for it too. And that's the key. So we got to, yeah, I, I feel as a nation in, in, uh, in hockey, we need to, uh, we need to restore. Uh, we need a restoration of, of where we used to be. Uh, and it's going to take a lot of work to do that. I just, I'm just not sure uh, the people that are, that are in the places to make the decisions uh, have their, have their, um, their same focal point. They might be at different focal points at, at the stage right now, but I hope uh, I hope that uh, that we do restore what we had as a nation for sure. You know, a friend of a, f- a friend of mine who's a filmmaker. Um, he does a lot of stuff on uh, military uh, documentaries, and I said, you know, because uh, his daughter um, plays uh, played with my niece in the past, and they, they're high level players. And I said, you know, the, the the Canadian perception of uh, the perception of Canadian hockey as a superpower is kind of dwindling a bit. Like, and how do you like? What's your way of explaining that to relate to the world? He said, "Okay, here's all. I'll explain it to you. The U.S. military is the superpower of the world, and it's the it's the guy in the gym who's six four, three hundred pounds, can go to the bench press." Benches 500 pounds for five reps with ease, no big deal, racks it, and then goes sits at the juice bar and, you know, yeah, can do that anytime I want. All the other powers who are up and coming, they're the 200-pound guy in the gym 
benching 250 for 50 reps. And I think that's what's happened now. We, we have become that big hulk of a person in the gym where it was just so easy for so long. Like you look at a roster, um, and even in the early to mid-90s, out of the 20 guys that start, 18 of them are probably Canadian, maybe one American, maybe one Swede or Russian. That's not the case anymore. It, it's really changed. And, I, and, it, and this is a, something I thought of um, yesterday. It, it was like an aha moment where they're saying, well, we got to change the culture and the environment and we got to do this, we got to do that. And I'm not picking on anyone specifically with Hockey Canada. I still think Hockey Canada is the mega power. And, you know, especially when those arenas open after this pandemic, we're going to come back with a lot of fire in our belly. That's for sure. But I do believe that the people are saying we got to do the new way. They didn't grow up with, with what is becoming the new way. It's still the old way in their mind. And I think what you said, that sharing and bringing in people who can contribute to these new teachings is really important. But it does start at the top to, to, to bring this kind of attitude into North America because it's working at the USA. USA Hockey is doing a pretty great job. Mind you, they got a population that's 10, 10 XRs. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, we could have been more innovative, I guess is what I'm trying to say in the last decade or so. Yeah, great, great analogy there. Really good. I agree 100%. You know, it's, it doesn't matter what the amount of people is. It just matters. You know, it takes me back, like you said, you know, 10 soldiers can win a war if they work together. And, and that's the thing here. We, we want to we want to make sure that everyone, the sharing part of things, Scotty, is, is the most critical part. And, and I guess the part that you bring up is probably one of the best things as far as coaching is concerned. Remember when they started to, a couple of years ago, implement the half ice stuff with the younger players to go half ice. And, and like you said, all the coaches that have been involved in our game, you know, to date have been around for a long time. And then all of a sudden someone comes down and says, you know what, we're not going full ice anymore. We're going to go half ice. Plus, you're going to have to go back and get reevaluated as a coach, be certified, and you're going to have to do this, this, and this, and it's going to cost this much. So that old coach is saying, I ain't changing. There's no reason for me to change because what I'm doing, what I've done is worked. I've won five championships in 10 years I've coached, and I'm not changing. So that's one of the issues I feel is out there where, where the Swedes and the Finns, and I don't mean to compare them all the time, but they've been doing half ice since I've been going over there for 20 years. They've been at half ice. And their half ice has finally, after all these years, almost surpassed us with what they've been doing as far as skills are concerned. I'm talking about the skill output and the success of their winning you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's a great point by saying, you know, it, it has to start from the from the top, like you said. And I want to be those people that are at the top that says, okay, you know what, let's let's spread the word. we got to spread the word. Here's what we got to do uh, from a skill standpoint, obviously. And, you know, like this is, this is one thing we want to do. We want to get the programs uh, on the shooting side of things to go down this aspect. We want the skating side of things and the puck handling side of things. And then we got, oh, they got to learn how to breathe. They got to do breathing. They got to do yoga, and then they got to do everything else. And that's one thing we didn't mention that NHL players do all the time. They, they do breathing classes. They do positive mindfulness classes. They do yoga classes, and and that's all incorporated into their skill aspect and trying to to do stuff that they can when they don't have the ice. So if that's I kind of ran off there a little bit, but but you're right. 
great analogy. I think we need to come together um, as a nation and then start sharing that information from all levels. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's fascinating. The more we think about, uh, you know, just getting micro with these skills, like how much is involved and you can do it so many different ways and you got to really do what's right for you at the end of the day. Like I know we're covering a lot of, uh, you know, uh, intellectual uh, property here, we'll call it of Tim Turk, but uh, you know, it's really, you got to take what works for you. What's clicking in your brain, take that out, test it. And if it doesn't work, it's not failure because failure is just testing and you move on and you find out what works. Now, here's some, here's some fun stuff that's come up in my head that I want to wrap up here in the next, uh, in the next few questions uh, that I thought at the top of my head. So I hope you're game for this. So let's say there's a competition, you know, a world competition and all these shooting coaches can pick one guy to be their shooter for this big shooter Olympics. You know, you can choose anyone, any era, anyone in the world of any era. Who's Tim Turk's shooter? Who, who, who are you putting your money on to, to be your guy to win that, win that shooting title? Okay, so what's the shooting competition? Are we, are, we talking ultimate, are we talking ultimate shot accuracy, power, speed of release, like a whole combo? Are we doing hardest shot? No, we- we're, we're, we're doing, we're doing we'll, I'll, put it to, I'll put it this way. Let's, let's, build it by, let's build a dream team, okay? So let's talk about uh, hardest shot. Who are you taking? Hardest shot, I'd probably... I'm probably going to take Al McInnes. Yep, I would too. There you go. Okay, I'll, I'll fire the next one. Uh, targets, the four-corner target. And I'm talking not just hitting four. I'm talking who can do it with the most precision, the quickest. Well, I'm taking Pacioretty on that. Pacioretty, to me, accuracy five on five in, in pressurized play in an NHL game. Accuracy, pinpoint accuracy is a one-foot box. He can put that puck in a one-foot box anytime he wants. Okay, quickest release. Uh, Tarasenko. Best that, would be, that would be even with McGillney. You remember McGillney? Oh yeah. 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 So McGillney and Tarasenko, and you can same same nationality. But anyways, those two guys, those two guys have the quickest release. Best silent release. Um, I'm gonna say Colton Pareko. Oh, okay, that's a good pick. I like that one. All right, now best goal score. Um, I'm going to say shooting, shooting, no deking. This is sniper, best sniper. A sniper. I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to take my boy Stamkos. Yeah. Even yeah. over guys like Bossy and Lemieux. Oh yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Wow. But it, he is an evolution for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredible. I remember, and to go off track for a second, I remember I played against Stamco once in the summer and, uh, we had a, 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 a all-star team of the top double a guys and triple a guys and we were winning all these tournaments and you know summer hockey whatever it is what it is some tournaments are better than others but then i heard about you know oh we're playing markham and you know the stamkos is on the team we're we're up shit creek today and we're 12 right i'm thinking come on guys like we got a pretty good team how good could he possibly be so I saw him there, and I was, I was a power forward, and we all know that the lockout killed the power forward star, but I pride myself on that still. And uh, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a really good hitter. Shoulder to the sternum like Wendell Clark all day, baby. I'm going for it. So he comes up. He, he gets the pass in the neutral zone. He's wheeling up. He looks up. I'm coming in there like a freight train. I bend over. I'm going to do the hip check and toss him over. We both go, stop. And as we stop... He cradles the puck, throws it up, and says, nice hip check, and skates around me. <laughs> we lost the game 6-1. He had five of the six goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that's my Stephen Stamkos sto- uh, story. So 
you know, that's a good one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. So, um, here, here's a unique one. And, and there's one person I have in mind for, for this particular shot. And I'm, I'm not too sure if, if we'll match up the same, but you know, I'm going to, if we don't, we'll, I'll tell you who my pick would be best backhander. Well, there's two guys, number 87 and number 87, Pittsburgh, number 88 in Chicago. Uh, I was going to say, what were you going to say? I, well, I'm going really old school just because I love, I'm, I'm more of a, of a golden era kind of guy. I was going to say Dave Keon. Oh yeah. Keon with that blade. Yeah. yeah straight, straight stick. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean like he, but shot though, like it, people, people misconcept the backhand shot where, you know, they get into the, they get into the trench or into the slot area. They make a quick move from forehand to backhand and they kind of do a little flicking type of backhand or a chip backhand, which has spin on it. I'm talking an actual wristed backhand and the, the, the Keon could do that really well from perimeter. The first time I ever saw it before I saw Keon do it in documentaries and stuff like that was uh, when the Leafs traded for Olin Nolan in yeah. the playoffs. He came on his off wing and then all of a sudden you see his stick flex and the blade just whipped Yeah, and it went the far corner and in. And I'm like, I didn't know you could do that. You know, mind yeah. I'm 13 at the time. I'm thinking, oh, my God, that is so cool. That is awesome. Yeah, that's activating the wrist there, Scotty. Uh, that wrist activation, making making that blade turn like that, that's where you get the spin from. And, and if you can do it as a backhand the same way you can do a forehand wrist turn, then you're doing really well. Yeah, and he was doing it leaning. The defenseman, he was leaning in on his off wing too. And uh, it, it, like, it, like the defenseman was pushing on so it was impressive to do that. Okay, so there's the dream team. Now let's talk about if you're making a custom stick for Tim Turk. What 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 does your custom stick look like? So let's talk about the the the, uh, the flex. What are you going with for flex? Uh, I use a um, I use a 91 flex, but I use a super tall stick. It's kind of like it's into my forehead area, up in this area. So I use a 91 flex, and the lies uh, lies a 7.2. I use a 7. I use 2. I use a really high lie, so pucks close to my body, and it's a uh, can't explain the curve on it. It's a custom. It's a custom curve. It's kind of, sorta. It's if you can picture a Lidstrom and not heel curve. Yeah. It, but it, what I did was I took that heel curve and I moved it more into the middle. Yeah. So I, so I moved it up to the middle, but I kept the loft, the loft on the blade, so it's kind of open a little bit, and it's kind of conceptive. And then I go with a combination um, square and round toe. So I have the top. I can. I, I'll get you my stick and I'll show it to you in a second. I have one here. Um, the, the the top the top of the stick is more rounded. The bottom of the toe is more square. So it's kind of like the toe is on an it's on an angle going in like that. It's uh, I use that for for a puck shot release and for gathering pucks off a wall and stuff like that. It almost sounds like you're taking that that heel twist but you're positioning it in the middle, kind of like how Sackick had with his curve. You're leaving a bit of the Lindstrom curve there, but then you're rounding it out. Yeah. That's uh, that's kind of a Dr. Frankenstein kind of thing. You yeah, got going on there. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but every fan. time I shoot, it goes in. Well, there you go. Well, Tur- Turkey, here's my last one for you. And I, and I ask all of our experienced veterans uh, guests who are on here this question before we sign off uh, for the day. Uh, it's, you know, we're April 2nd, 2020. And 16-year-old Tim Turk is sitting across the table from you. What advice do you give to that uh, to that young man? That's a great question. You know, like uh, it it starts with, and the funny thing is, being a shooting coach, sometimes it has nothing to do with shooting puck. It has 
has everything to do with having an open mind and, and the willingness to improve. And I always talk about the determination of improvement through the willingness to do so. And uh, once you're determined um, to do something and uh, you're willing to, to commit to doing it, then usually what happens is it builds a couple of different things. It builds your thought process into a confidence level. Uh, it rises that confidence knowing that you can do what you want to do and uh, allows you to, uh, to make choices in what to do. And, and to do that, ultimately, you need to have a plan. So you want to have a plan. It doesn't matter what sport you are in hockey more specifically. Um, I, would, I would encourage players to have a plan, um, a short-term, a mid-term, a long-term plan, uh, what they want to try and achieve, and then have a backup plan for that short-term, have a backup plan for the mid-term, and a backup plan for the long term, just in case uh, the path that you're on doesn't take you to that to that uh, end uh, success right away, because uh, sometimes uh, more doors close than they open, and um, having the ability to handle any negative setback, anytime you've been cut or told that you're not good enough at something or you need to work on something, how you handle that is gonna is gonna determine. Um, what kind of character you have going forward. So if you can build off of, off of your planning, uh, have the commitment to do so, have the willingness and the determination to improve your, your shot, your skating, anything. And I mean, while we're on the subject, and I, know, I don't mean to, to linger on, but a lot of players that have scouting reports and they're at the elite levels, you know, they'll read stuff about themselves. They'll say, well, this player is a great skater, needs to work on their shot or vice versa player's a great shooter, uh, needs to work on their skating. Uh, when players read that kind of stuff, they tend to shy away from things that they're good at, which is, in my opinion, wrong. They need to focus on everything and plan out what to do. If someone says you're a great skater, then you need to maintain it and still improve it. Just the same thing with your shot, your puck control, your, your vision, uh, and your mind stuff. And there's way to, ways to go about doing that. And that's the reason why we do what we do. Scotty, we, we want to help these players as much as possible. You just got to find the right path to stay on when you get to it. And you'll know what that is for sure. You'll know what that is. So, uh, and also encourage them to research, watch video, you know, get visual with it. Uh, talk to your friends, talk to your coaches, uh, skills and minor coaches and bench coaches, and make sure that you're communicating, continue communicating as much as possible because it's only going to keep your your mind in a positive, positive mindset. I love that open-mindedness, have a plan, have goals, communicate. Again, there's no, there's no specific magic formula here. It's the person and how far they want to go with it. Uh, Turk, this has been amazing. I've loved everything you had to say. I can't wait till we get you back on the show. And uh, we got this one Minnesota kid, prospect he's a little older in his 40s uh he's got raw ability you know i think you can really help him with his shot he's trying to start you know he's doing his own instruction this uh this dan lichterman fella top prospect but next time we hook up i'm going to show you this kid he's got he's got something there you'll know you'll know when you see him win or lose hit the booze i'm looking forward to it (laughs) this is scott mcdonald with the student athlete podcast provided by real experience signing out